Chapter Seven of The Wind by Dorothy Scarborough. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Avai in August two thousand twenty-one. Chapter Seven. Cora moved briskly about the Monday morning kitchen like a nature goddess in a blue gingham dress, repairing the ravages of visitors' appetites and the muss which Sunday leisure brings about in a house where men and children spent the hours. Letty reflected on the futility of cleaning up, for look how hard she and Cora had worked the day before to put the house in shining order, and now everything was upset again. But the house was so little, and so many people had to live in it, that it was impossible to keep it straight. Beverly sat by the window, mending a piece of harness. The baby was perched in her high chair beside the stove, and pounded on her tin breakfast plate with a spoon, the noise giving her keen delight. The energy of her gesture occasionally brought the spoon up at the wrong angle, to strike her head with its coppery curls, and made her blink and catch her breath from the shock. But she was spirited and determined, hence would not give over her orchestral attempts. She looked at her father now and then to win a smile from him. Cora was cleaning the kitchen with an equal vigour. She broomed the older children out of the room with emphatic gesture. You young uns get in the front room and get to your books. Letty was drying the dishes and putting them away in the bottom part of the safe to keep them from the sand. She could never, never get used to the sight and touch and smell of sand everywhere all the time. The smooth oilcloth on the table was gritty again a moment after you had wiped it off with a damp cloth. There wasn't any use in dusting the furniture, for the sand followed your every movement. A yellowish-gray film was over everything you saw or touched. When you woke up in the morning, the sand was on your cheeks and in your eyes and nostrils, and gritting down inside your clothes against your body. Ah, oh, what a country! Then she smiled, as she thought of the night before. How funny and friendly those cowboys had been! Their antiphonal proposal struck her suddenly as so comical that she chuckled to herself with amusement. Of course, she couldn't ever think of marrying either one of them, but they were jolly and good-hearted, and she liked them both. Wasn't Sourdough a regular cut-up? He could make a hit as a clown in a circus if he wanted to. He had a native wit and humour that could have meant a good deal to him if he had had a chance at an education. But just to be a cow-puncher didn't give a man any chance at all. Lige was more serious, more of a man, but he was pretty much of a boy at heart himself, with his awkward dignity, his shy, big-mouthed smile. He talked less than Sourdough, but he thought more. How delicious for Sourdough to think they must rustle her a husband! And Lige's finding fault with every man his partner proposed. She giggled at the remembrance as she stooped to put away the plates. Cora smiled in a pleasing fashion. "'Tell us what's the joke?' Letty blushed as if she had been overheard in her thoughts. "'Oh, nothing.' 
Cora was scouring the stove with a blackened cloth, but she paused in her task to turn a significant look upon her. "'Haven't you got no news to tell us, after last night?' Letty's blush deepened. "'No, not a thing.' Cora dropped her cloth in indignation. "'Do you mean to tell me that those boys didn't pop the question last night, after sourdough asking me to give him a good chance, and me going to so much trouble to do it?' Letty's face was burning now, and her heart aghast. "'Oh, they—they they did,' she stammered. "'But—but—that was all there was to it.' Cora looked astonished. "'And you didn't take either of them?' Her tone was menacing. Letty shrank from her look and voice, so cold, so hard. "'No.' "'And why, pray?' Oh, come now, Cora, Beverly interposed. Don't embarrass the child. Keep your tongue out of this, Bev, she warned him. Then she turned again to Letty with a relentless, Why? Letty's knees were wobbling, and her muscles felt like water, but she plucked up spirit to defend herself. Because I don't love either of them because I'm not ready to think of marrying. It was as if she took up a cudgel to protect her chance of far-off romance, her right to love when and whom she choose. But Cora recognized no reserves of thought or speech, no privilege of privacy, even in one's secret heart. And why ain't you in love with them? There ain't two better boys in this county than them two. I know they're good, and I like them, but... Letty faltered, feeling a sense of loyalty to her friends. She couldn't voice the thought that these two kind men were rough and uncouth and common, not to be considered as remotely possible lovers. To laugh and talk with them was good fun, yes. To dance with them, yes. But to marry... Her whole being gave a shuddering no. But Cora, with clairvoyant malice, read her thoughts. Oh, so they ain't good enough for you, huh? She sneered. Cora! Beverly's voice was sharp. And then he smiled one of his rare smiles at her, in attempt to placate her and bring peace between her and Letty. You must have said no to a lot of likely young men, my girl, before you married me. Girls have to have their freedom to choose. You wouldn't have let anybody else pick for you, would you? She turned on him like an iceberg afire. Yes, but I was living in my own home, with men of my own to support me and take care of me. I wasn't living in some other woman's house, where I wasn't wanted. Letty gave a sharp little cry. Beverly sprang to his feet, and his chair crashed backward to the floor. Cora, be careful, he grated. But Cora's fury, long controlled, was unleashed now. Not even for Bev would she restrain herself. Oh, so I've got to be careful, huh? 
I've got to walk soft and talk pleasant and cover up my feelings at seeing you treat another woman better than you do me. Cora, hush, he cried, towering over her. You know she's just like my little sister. Oh, you think I haven't got eyes in my head to see how she honey-fuggles round you, and how you think she's so pretty and sweet and refined. You think she hung the moon in the sky because she's your cousin and came from Virginia, and I'm nothing but your wife, no better than a coyote. She looked like a flame of jealous fury, her eyes glittering, her cheeks burning, her hair seemed to send out sparks of light. For God's sake, Cora! Beverly clutched at her wrist, but she flung him off. Letty shrank huddled against the table, the dish-towel pressed close against her mouth to stifle her sobs. Her body shook. Terror poured its poison through her veins. I didn't know! I didn't know! Her bitter voice swelled out at last. I wish I'd have died before I came! And I, began Cora, but a look at Beverly's face, so white and stern, so awesome in its look of scorn, silenced her. Stop right there, Cora, he said in a tone of ice and flint. He stared for a moment at the two women, petrified in their attitudes, one of wrath and one of terror. Letty, I think you'd better go into the front room with the children he said. Then he turned to his wife. Cora, I'm going out for a while to give you time to think, and come to yourself. He snatched his coat and hat from their nail behind the door. The door opened, closed, the wind swallowed him. Letty fled to the children's room to fling herself face downward on the bed. Her body writhed and jerked with sobs. The room was icy cold and she shook with a nervous chill, so that presently she crept under the covers, terrified lest she be sick and bring more annoyance to Cora, more trouble to Bev. She tried to think, but she could only feel, a devouring shame, a heartache that swelled and pulsed through her whole body, a despair. If only she might die, quickly, and be out of it all how life had tricked and cheated her. To have to live a dependent in another woman's home where she was hated, to know that her being there made life hard for Bev, poor Bev who had had so much to bear. That was the hardest of all. She remembered something her black mammy had said once. Motherless chillens are better off dead. Ah, dear God, yes. But they didn't die. She was exhausted from crying, her heart throbbed like a hot drum, but she tried to think of some way out. She must think. Surely there was some way out of this. What could she do? She hadn't any money to take her anywhere, and there was nowhere for her to go. Virginia seemed as far away as another planet she might have lived on in an earlier existence, its people like figures in a dim dream. She smiled ironically as she remembered that the pastor had thought he was doing the kind thing for her, 
when he had written that letter to cousin Belf, asking if he wouldn't take her in to live with his family. Heartbreak could come about through people's mistakes as well as through their sins. Who had sinned here? Yet three people were wretched. She couldn't think of staying on here. And yet where could she go? She wasn't trained to make her living, for Virginia girls didn't go outside the home. But what if you didn't have any home? To whom could you turn? Should she marry one of the cowboys? She writhed away from the thought. To marry one of those rough, uncouth men, even if they were good and kind. And without love? She'd rather die. Should she appeal to Mr. Word Roddy for advice and help? That thought stayed longer in her mind. She had forgotten her faint fear of him that she had known on the train, and she visioned him now as a knightly figure that might come riding to her rescue. Not her prince of romance, but an older man who might help her. He had emerged into chivalry in her remembrance now. But he had been in the county and hadn't come to see her. He had forgotten all about her and wouldn't even recall her name if she wrote to him. No, she couldn't do that. Shame harried her, but pride blocked every way of escape. Her pride must be crucified, whichever way she turned. At last she fell asleep from sheer physical and emotional exhaustion, and lay in a sort of stupor until evening. She had no realization of time, whether she had lain there for hours or for days. All she knew was that the thought of lifting her head from the pillow was intolerable, that any exertion was an effort impossible to make. She was awakened to see Bev standing beside her bed, and Cora behind him with a lighted lamp in her hand. "'Wake up, Letty, and come have some supper,' he said gently. She shook her head, her throat closing at thought of food eaten at Cora's table. She would rather starve. "'I don't want anything.' "'You'll get sick if you don't eat,' said Cora dully. Letty sat up in submission, though every movement was an intolerable exertion. What matter what she did anyhow? Beverly stood looking first at one and then the other of the two women. He spoke in a voice that was gentle but had a tired deadness in it. I can't bear for you two girls to misunderstand each other. Cora, can't you see that Letty is no more in love with me nor I with her than, than my own little Alice? She's just like my young sister that died when I was a boy. And I'm the nearest to a father or brother or uncle that she has now. Don't you see that? Cora nodded sullenly. What coercion of spirit had Bev put on her to bring her even to this outward show of submission? He turned to Letty. And I don't want you to misjudge Cora. She's got one of the kindest hearts in the world. She'd take in any old hobo or tramp Mexican and nurse him through smallpox. 
she would deprive herself of food to give to a dog. And I wouldn't be alive myself tonight if it hadn't been for her. Yes, whispered Letty, clasping her cold hands together and looking up at him with eyes that had a dull glaze over them, like a sick mocking-bird's. He went on. But she just can't stand the thought of my looking at another woman. She ought to know by this time that I never do. Letty realized that he was talking more to his wife than to her, and her heart beat thickly as she waited for Cora to answer. But the sullen silence was maintained. Letty felt as if the three were in a dialogue of the dead. And why should I even wish to think of anybody else? His face wore a bleak look, but his voice was tender. When a fellow is married to the prettiest girl in the county, he hasn't got eyes for anybody else. Cora flung her head up haughtily, but her eyes swam with tears. Bev, you've never hurt me before, like you did this morning. His gaze met hers squarely. You never gave me cause, before. Letty looked wretchedly up at them. Was another quarrel going to start between them, over her? She must rouse herself, say something to prevent it. I think I'll just undress and go to sleep, she stammered. I'll feel better in the morning. So they put the lamp down on the table and went into the kitchen. The little house was silent earlier than usual that night, and the children were asleep. But outside the night was wide awake and full of menace. The coyotes yelped all through the dark hours, their yapping, lugubrious cries prowling about the plains, and the wind uttered unearthly sounds. She could hear it wailing like a lost soul, like a banshee, like a demon lover. The next morning Letty moved about the house like the little grey wraith of a girl long dead. A strange constraint lay over the whole household, and even the children were quieter under the spell of it. Only the baby was untroubled by it, and high on her throne she struck her tin cymbal with indifferent delight. Soon after breakfast Beverly spoke to his wife. Cora, I've got to go over to see Hub Henderson about some steers. How about you going with me? Letty read his considerate thought. He would keep the two women apart as much as possible for a while, till the bitterness and hurt could heal somewhat. Sure, I'll go with you, said Cora. He would know, Letty told himself, that Cora would be glad to go off alone with him, without even the children to come between them. And she could have the unwanted freedom of a day to herself, except for the youngsters who didn't count. Children were companions, but not intruders in one's privacy of thought. One could suffer without shame in the presence of children. You want to wrap up well, he told Cora. The cattle have been acting a little like we might have a norther before long. You think today? No, not this soon, I guess. When they had driven away, after directions to the children to be good, 
Letty felt as if a steel trap that had held her heart constricted had been released. Hugh Penderson, she knew, lived five miles beyond Lige and Sourdough, which meant that Bev and Cora would be gone all day. They couldn't get back until late afternoon. She had the blessing of a whole day in which to think. Maybe by the time they came home she could know what to do. To stay on meant that she would keep upsetting the peace of Beverly's home, that she'd make life hard for him. She could bear the humiliation for herself, if there were no other way, but she couldn't bring strife and hard feeling into his home. Perhaps if she prayed hard enough, God would show her a way out. He ought to, honestly, she thought, because it was the pastor that had got her into this fix. She had sorely missed the church life since she had come to the ranch, but with the nearest church twenty-five miles away, so that one couldn't drive there and back in a day through the wind and sand, they couldn't go. There was talk of a camp meeting in the summer-time, but summer was a million years away. All through the day, a prayer for guidance, for a way of escape, fluttered round and through all Letty's thoughts. In the past, prayer had been a somewhat perfunctory business with her, a matter of saying her childish prayers at night and morning, more as a ritual than anything else, though she had not been insincere. But now she felt that for the first time in her life she actually prayed. Her thoughts strained upward in an agony of appeal. Surely if she prayed hard enough, and believed, God would open a way for her, would show her what to do. All the while she was busy with household tasks, cooking and washing dishes, her heart was uttering its petitions for help. Even while she was talking to the children, behind her words, behind her surface thoughts, her prayers were live things, wild, formless, intense, beating the air like wings. In the mid-afternoon Letty stood at the window looking out over the prairie, so that her eyes might have at least temporary rest from the prison of the house. She saw a number of gaunt cattle bunched together in groups here and there, their heads put together, their backs to the north. Their mournful, continuous lowing had a note of fear in it. The boys came and stood beside her to see them. Junior said casually, The old-timers say when cattle act that away, there's going to be a norther. I wonder will it be a blue norther or a cross-eyed norther, conjectured Dan. There's all sorts, you know. I don't know, answered Junior. Alice shyly slipped her hand in Letty's, as if for protection from marauding winds. I don't like northers. Letty's heart fluttered wildly like a prisoned bird. Neither did she, oh, neither did she, to face another of these terrible winds whose cold chilled you to the marrow of your bones, whose violence battered at you, bruised you in body and mind, whose unknown terrors made you sick. But maybe it wouldn't come. Maybe the children were wrong in their prophecy. Then she remembered what Bev had said, and shivered. And the cattle knew, they must know. 
poor things out defenceless on the plains how they must suffer when the northers came there came a strange stillness for a time when the wind seemed to have gathered its forces together and withdrawn for a while ah the cattle had been mistaken after all for the wind was not blowing at all all signs fail in texas the sky was blue with a golden gauze of sand over it and no clouds were anywhere to be seen the heavens as empty as the prairies themselves that stretched out to infinity with no sign of human life on them in virginia there would be someone passing almost any time that you looked out and so you never got lonesome with a neighborly road to look at but here there weren't even what you could call roads to be seen just stretches of sand everywhere the same presently she watched the sun slip toward the horizon a naked uncovered sun moving across a vacant sky to join an empty plain but he shot a fiery glow athwart the heavens and the earth and the gauzy sand became more luminous more dazzling as if it must show all the radiance that sunset clouds usually reflected the earth itself seemed to give forth light a yellow cosmic light and the golden glow overspread all the sky in an effect such as letty had never seen before she thought of the sunset she had witnessed from the train when mr Wirt roddy had called her attention to the splendor of the scene sunset and sunrise were marvelous in this land but oh the hours between as she turned toward the north she saw a puny cloud slight and fragile touching the prairie's rim a white feathery nothing like a ball of thistle-down floating along the ground but as she looked it grew and darkened swiftly it spread over the sky until it blotted out the blue till it hung all black pall over the wide heavens it happened so quickly with such incredible rapidity that letty could scarcely believe it even while her eyes watched it letty with the children close behind her stepped to the door and opened it that she might have a better look at this amazing cloud transformation like a necromancer's magic like the effects the indian magicians work deluding the physical eyesight as she met the outer air she felt the icy chill of a sudden drop in temperature she heard the norther as it came roaring over the plains it sure is a rip snorter of a one cried junior as they darted back into the house and slammed the door to shut out the wind night was on them almost immediately for the clouds had blotted out the daylight wiping out even the brief wintry dusk that usually obtained and biff and cora hadn't come home to still her terror of the wind and to keep the children from being panicky letty bustled about in the kitchen making a brave show of fearless activity in preparation of supper for the children she could not eat anything herself but the youngsters made a meal in apprehensive silence very unlike their usual noise when she had washed and dried the supper dishes and put them away 
she gathered the children together in the front room to wait for Bev and Cora to come home. She mustn't let the children see her panic, she told herself. She must control herself, for their sake, so they wouldn't be scared. They were game youngsters and tried to seem unconcerned in order to keep her from being uneasy, but she could feel their fear, and they hers. The boys built up a red fire in the stove, and its glow lit the room with cheer they did not feel. Outside, the wind on the plains roared like a thousand devils let loose from the pit. Where were Bev and Cora? Could they make it home? Do you reckon Papa and Mamma will get home all right? quavered Alice as she huddled against Letty. Oh, yes, I'm sure they will she lied consolingly. "'Sing to us,' said Dan. And so Letty sang song after song to keep them from thinking of their danger and of their parents out on the wild plains. Old ballads, nursery jungles, negro folk songs, she sang until her voice was tired and her body drooped. But each time that silence came, the children moved uneasily, and the wind outside let her hear the menace of its sounds. She mustn't hear the wind if she could help it. At last, without realizing what she was doing, she drifted into the strains of the old spiritual she had heard her black mammy sing when storms threatened. She remembered how mammy had rebuked her once for making fun of her fear of the lightning. Hush, child, don't you know we mustn't talk when the Lord's speaking in his thunder and his winds? So, thinking of the comfort of those loving black arms, and longing for it now, she sang, Lord, I don't want to die in a storm, in a storm. Lord, I don't want to die in a storm, in a storm. When the wind blows east and the wind blows west, Lord, I don't want to die in a storm. Still, Bev and Cora hadn't come. Presently, Letty noticed that the children were becoming drowsy from the warmth of the fire and were nodding. Oh, she couldn't let them go to sleep and leave her alone. But it would be cruel to rouse them. Poor little things, they were scared too. Junior slumped back in a rocking chair his head lolling to one side. Dan put his head on his arms on the table by which he was sitting, and made no concealment of his slumber, while Alice crept over to the bed and lay down. Letty held the sleeping baby in her arms as she rocked back and forth. The warmth, the companionship of the little unconscious body, gave her comfort as she held it close. Would Bev and Cora be able to make their way home through this gale? Were they lost on the plains, perhaps freezing to death? Would a night like this bring back Bev's old trouble with his lungs, and maybe be the death of him? And he had invented that errand today in order to contrive a way to keep her and Cora apart for a time. His death would be on her hands. How could any horse find its way in such a storm and blackness? Surely all sense of direction would be lost, even the coyote sense that plainsmen were said to have. 
and in that lonely wilderness there were no neighbor lights to guide a traveller to safety and even if there were wouldn't this swirling sand hide them from view urged by an uncontrollable restlessness she laid the baby down on the bed beside alice covered the two with a blanket and fell to pacing the floor like a wild thing trapped she felt an utter desolation of loneliness such as she had never conceived of she started to rouse the sleeping children but pity stayed her why wake them to suffer as she was suffering she fancied she could see a lost horse staggering futilely in a desert of sand mocked by the winds while two stiff and frozen figures in the hack were still forever and because of her the wind was a demon that had driven them all crazy that had put false thoughts in cora's mind making her stir up this trouble that had made bev speak harshly to his wife and bring bitterness between them it was the wind that had sent him on this errand in order to lure him and cora to their deaths and all because of her the wind was determined to destroy her because she feared it so it was after her and she couldn't escape it she saw the wind as a black stallion with mane stream and hoofs of fire speeding across the trackless plains deathless defiant what if she were out on this prairie this night he would trample her down to her death with his fiery hoofs a phantom riderless horse whom no mortal would ever ride that no lariat flung by human hands could capture his proud neck arching his eyes glancing flames he raced toward her across the sand supernatural satanic the wind of the north but this was folly she told herself she mustn't let her fancy run away with her reason the wind was not a demon horse it was only the gale it might have power to sweep the house from its foundations and tear it into splinters but a wind could do that it might kill her yes but it was only the wind people went crazy if they let false idea get possession of their minds what had made her so deathly afraid of the wind ah yes it was the man on the train mr word roddy who had put the fear of the wind on her like a spell cruel cruel he wouldn't have done it surely if he had known all it would mean but now that she understood it it wouldn't scare her so it was the something you didn't understand that froze you with terror she was calmer for a moment and then she sprang up in frantic terror she could hear unmistakably the sound of a horse running at full speed it was coming nearer and nearer a long shrill neigh sounded just outside the door she gave a shivering scream and huddled against the wall her senses swooning from stark terror in an instant the door was flung open and the muffled figure of a man entered and slammed the door behind him silent stiff as a statue of ice letty stood there unable to speak unable to breathe 
Who was it? Then, as a broad hat was swept off and a muffler was removed from his throat, Lige stood revealed. Did I scare you? he asked with his comfortable smile. You? You? She choked, her fingers twisting. Then she began to sob in the ecstasy of her relief. He took off his overcoat and came to spread his fingers out before the blaze of the stove. Thought you might be scared of the wind, and so I come to look after you. Her mind struggled with the mystery of it. How did you know? I was by myself, she babbled almost incoherently. Bev and Cora stopped by my place, had started home from Hughes when the Norther caught them. I made them stay there and let me come on to take care of you and the kids. He paused a moment to give her time to take it in, much in the way one would dole out morsels of nourishment to one starving. Too much at once would not be wise. Then he continued. A woman would freeze to death driving ten miles in this wind, and Bev's old trouble would be almost sure to come back to him if he got exposed too bad. And you rode ten miles in this storm to look after me? She could not believe it. He nodded and smiled. Sure. They're at my place now, as snug as bugs in a rug, and here I am with you all so there ain't nothing to worry about at all. His tone and gesture seemed to wave away her fears visibly. She wiped her eyes and checked her sobbing, but she couldn't stop the shuddering catch of breath, such as a child makes when it tries hard to stop crying, but cannot, all at once. "'What's all these here tears about?' he wanted to know. They broke out afresh at his reminder. Oh, Lige, I've been so miserable. Cora hates me and don't want me to stay here. And it makes everything so hard for Bev for me to stay. And I've been scared half crazy of the wind. Huh? The wind's just a big blow hard. You'll get used to it after a while if you stay long enough. Then he drew his brows together in thought. But the other matter's different, I save. If you could be willing maybe to marry me and let me take you away from here. She shook her head without speaking, as if instinctively. No, he said softly. No, I'm sorry, Lige. Tears trickled down her cheeks and her shoulders heaved. He patted her arm with big, awkward hand. That's all right. I understand. Maybe some day. They stood in silence for a few moments while the wind ceased its clamor for a time, as if to hear their thoughts. Oh, how blessed not to be alone with the night and the storm! And, oh, how good that the wind was not blowing so hard. Then, with a roar of released tension, the gale struck the house, its fearful impact threatening to sweep the structure from its foundations, to blow it to splinters. 
Letty gave a shriek of mad terror and flung herself into Lyja's arms. The wind! The wind! Oh, save me! Don't let the wind get me! He gathered her close with rough tenderness. There, there, honey. I won't let nothing hurt you. Wind, nor women, nor nothing else. He kissed her tear-wet cheeks, he smoothed her hair, he murmured soothing words to her as a mother would comfort a child, while the wind shook the house and its roaring filled their ears. She clung to him, babbling disconnected words, just as she had used to cling to her black mammy when anything frightened her in the night. She heard herself promise that she would marry Lige the next day, not because she loved him, not because she was ready for marriage, but because she must spare Bev, and because she was afraid of the wind. End of chapter 7